All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode on The Margin. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by Nick Carter and Caitlin Long. Welcome to the show, guys. Good, Good to be you. here. Thank you. Awesome. So it's been a really calm last couple of weeks. I'm not really <laughs> sure what we're gonna what we're gonna talk about here, but uh, maybe, maybe we could actually just start with the high level. And I'd love to get your thoughts on just kind of the current state of the banking system. So obviously, we've had three pretty high profile closures uh, in the U.S. Here, we've had Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, most recently Signature Bank. We're going to talk a lot about that later in the episode. And obviously, we're seeing a lot of sign, uh, signs of stress with Credit Suisse as well over in Europe. Uh, so maybe Caitlin, I could sort of pick on you first as uh, as a legacy. Uh, banking gal yourself, what what's your kind of high level take on on everything that's going on right now? Well, look the the traditional banking system has always been insolvent at a systemic level. This has been obvious, and that means it's inherently unstable and prone to, to periodic, just major bouts of volatility. And uh, I like to point folks to the history, the book called. When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson mm. that explores the hyperinflations in Germany and Hungary and what you take away from the history, and this, this by the way, always happens in hyperinflations, is that the amplitude of the crises increases and the frequency also shrinks. So I'm not predicting an end to the US dollar system. I know a lot of people are. I think that's likely to come during our lifetimes. If you understand the history, you, you do understand that fiat currencies don't last forever. And it is the Triffin dilemma where, where too much debt starts getting piled on to the balance sheet of the country in aggregate. And as a result, the currency ultimately loses its value. And a lot of folks will look at that and say, well, you know, the Austrians have been predicting a collapse of the dollar since the 1970s, and they haven't been right. And that is true. Um, the issue is the balance sheet doesn't matter until it's the only thing that matters. And we are witnessing that with the banking sector right now as well. There's 2.2 trillion of unrealized losses in the bond portfolios of the, uh, of the banking sector. And unless interest rates come down, that insolvency is more than just a liquidity crisis. It is actually a solvency crisis. And uh, there are two ways to solve it. Either interest rates have to come down or the other way is the banking sector is just going to have to raise more fresh equity. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin, one follow-on question to that. What would you say to, because I think we've all sort of seen the chart that I think was actually originally published by the FDIC, but it shows unrealized loss in the bond portfolios of all these banks. Now, there's one pretty large contingency, which is, hey, wait a second, Bank of America, JP Morgan, this is not like Silicon Valley Bank. They mismanaged their risk. It's frankly wildly irresponsible that they weren't hedging and basically what ha they deserve what happened to them. Um, and then there's another contingency that says that's actually not necessarily how hedging works. Ultimately, this is risk that gets created. Someone's got to sit with that risk. What's your kind of thought on the hedging situation of these banks? Well, it is true that those banks that are subject to Basel III have to manage their liquidity and do have to hedge their interest rate risk. The regional banks and community banks that are not subject to Basel III don't have those requirements. That is a fact. Hmm. The issue is that essentially the, the community banks, which is, let's face it, where a lot of the credit creation in the U.S. economy does take place in certain sectors, a lot of real estate lending, 
a lot of lending to the heartland, to manufacturers, to the agriculture industry does happen only through commercial banks. And so there has there was a political deal. Frankly, it's been in place for decades that the commercial that the community and regional banks in the United States were not going to be subject to those same requirements. Okay, so what does that mean? The deal that got made was that the smaller banks, not the giant ones, the smaller banks, are allowed to roll the dice. They are encouraged, actually, by the way regulations work, hmm. to borrow short and lend long. What, ha- what has happened with clarity here is that in an information age, the whole concept of borrowing short and lending long, as in borrowing short-term and lending long-term, So you take in demand deposit money that can be withdrawn in a short period of time and you turn around and lend it in, say, a mortgage loan or an auto loan. Okay, there's a duration mismatch in this information age in which information moves at the speed of light. Banks cannot afford to do that to the same degree. And if you look at the balance sheets of the banks, virtually none of them are sitting on enough cash to back demand deposits that can be withdrawn in the, at the speed of minutes now. So here's the thing. It used to be you, you, have to, you had to go to a bank branch and fill out a paper form to make a bank d- withdrawal. Now you can do it on your phone or through APIs, you can do it through software. So the whole idea of how much time it took to put the instructions for the payment in, in the first place, that has shrunk. And it has shrunk, especially at the most tech forward banks. What's interesting is that the bank regulators have for a long time hated the most tech forward banks. They like Hmm. the concept that everything has to be analog because it slows everything down. However, that is not reality. People are voting with their feet and, and, and using tech, especially there's a generational difference here. In addition, there are a lot of people in their 20s who have never set foot in a bank branch, for example. Okay, so the whole concept that everything needs to stay slow and analog, that's just going to speed up the use of the digital asset industry because it's just a better experience. It's the same thing as taxi and limousine commissions when they were facing Uber. It was people voted with their feet. It was a better experience because it was technologically driven. And so these bank regulators who had it out for the tech forward banks, not just the crypto banks, but also the banks that serve the tech industry because they were using APIs and using tech forward online banking tools that give us the ability to, to access our money faster. Uh, you know, boy, this, this, this bank run is on those very regulators and history will not be kind to them. Yeah. I, I'd love to get your thoughts there as well, Nick. I think the, the technology component of this can't be ignored. The other thing that I want to draw attention to, Caitlin, completely agree with kind of this, uh, what you were saying about the community banks. And one commentary that I've seen that sort of resonated with me is that we're creating a bit of a two-tiered banking system here. And actually, there was a, Janet Yellen had to had testified before Congress, I think earlier this week, and there was a very stark clip where she was asked, uh, I'm blanking on the name of whoever asked her, but basically like, what are you going to do in response to deposits fleeing from these smaller regional banks into larger banks? She just didn't have a great answer. So, <laughs> you know, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty enlightening to watch. Nick, I'd love to get, get your thoughts here as well. Yeah. I think Kaylin makes an excellent point. I was just thinking this to myself this morning. I've never 
physically gone to a bank to send a wire or anything. I don't even know how I would do that. I don't have a checkbook. Uh, you know, I've never uh, written a check in my life. Um, and I was just thinking to myself, how is it possible that the banking regulators didn't realize the status quo in banking, which is that we have desktop mobile banking? I mean, <laughs> how did they not realize this? So, th so they're complaining that we, you know, people aren't lining up outside banks, which would be that throttling effect which reduces the bandwidth of outflows. And yet the obvious reality is that outflows can be basically instantaneous now, which require which would I think force a rethinking of liquidity ratios and the those sorts of requirements at banks because there's a structural change to the technology which means that it's easier to withdraw deposits now. I'm astonished that that hasn't been understood. And that regulators are still operating in this paradigm of old-timey bank runs where people literally line up on the street outside the bank. I mean, if you look at the coverage of some of the bank runs, you had reporters going to bank branches expecting to find people waiting outside. <laughs> <laughs> and there wasn't anyone. They're like, well, where is everyone? Well, they're on their laptop. <laughs> you know. So I that's one thing that I've just been thinking about lately, which just astonishes me. I think uh, Caitlin makes some excellent other points about um, smaller banks. So credit creation in this economy, small banks lend to small businesses, large banks lend to large businesses. If, as you know, reading the tea leaves here, if the Treasury and Janet Yellen are suggesting that small banks won't receive the same level of protection as the sort of global systemic institutions, there's no reason to leave your deposits in those banks. Uh, you, you would either go, and this is happening this week, I can assure you, everyone in our portfolio is doing this because uh, it's the rational thing to do. You're going and taking your deposits to the largest banks or you're moving them directly into treasuries. So the government is your counterparty, right? And that it has a really chilling effect on credit creation in the US. There's going to be a lot of sectors that are now underserved because uh, basically the private sector isn't creating credit anymore especially for like mom and pop style businesses, which are the ones that community banks lend to. And um, I, I think that's kind of a weirdly deflationary thing because it means there's less credit in the economy. And I think that's a very unfortunate consequence of this two-tiered system that appears to be in place now. And, and there's more. Just yesterday, the Fed confirmed that FedNow, which is the new payment system that is ultimately going to replace yeah. Fedwire is coming online in July. And it's a 24-7, 365 system. And there was a lot of information in the press release about the testing requirements that the banks that are going to be rolling it out in July will have to comply with. There was zero acknowledgement that the speed of money movement is going to increase inherently when you get a real-time system. So we were talking about how long it takes for you to put the payment instruction in, analog versus online banking or API. But now there's also speed up of settlement once the instruction is received by the bank. And that is going to be real-time. Now, FedNow only limits you to $100,000 at a time, but... $100,000 at a time equals a, equals increased bank run risk inherently. And I was floored that the Fed said nothing in that press release about requiring the banks that are going to be offering FedNow to hold more liquidity. It means they don't get it yet. 
Totally agreed. And I, I'll add that I, a lot of people think that it's suspicious that Signet and Sen were basically taken offline a week before that FedNow announcement. I think there's a degree. Uh, I, I mean, I don't think it's a, a coincidence, but I totally agree. The <laughs> bandwidth of moving money around has broadened and will will continue to broaden. It does bring us into congruence with what how banking system works in other developed countries. So I think it's kind of a technological necessity, but it also further fragilizes the banking system. Correct. And there absolutely must be an acknowledgement of that. But they're not acknowledging it. In fact, they're sweeping it under the rug. Did you guys see the New York Times bombshell that Jay Powell edited out the line in the press release on Sunday regarding Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank? that criticized the regulatory failure at the Fed. He's trying to hide it. He's trying to cover it up. And then I pointed out that the very at the very moment that the Silicon Valley bank run was in full swing, and you would have thought that the Fed's top cop would have known about it, the vice chair of supervision, Michael Barr, was bragging that Fed-supervised banks don't have bank runs. Well, guess what? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> And I'll just yeah. add to that, they spent, our our financial regulators spent the last two, three months berating the crypto industry for introducing safety and soundness risks into the banking system. <laughs> the risks yep. are coming from inside the house, guys. <laughs> the risks are coming from the structure of the banks um, and from the, the general lack of oversight. You know, it took private, uh, you know, who was the first one that noticed the, the issues in, in SVB's asset portfolio? I think the first person I saw was a newsletter writer called right, Bern Hobart. Not the, not the Federal Reserve, not the FDIC, not the OCC. So, I mean, it's just it's remarkable that they put so much energy into attacking crypto banks, <laughs> full reserve models like Custodia. Yeah. Meanwhile, their own house is burning down. Yeah. Oh, wait. Just wait till till you see what they will be saying about us. I don't know when it's going to come out, but there's something called an order that goes along with Fed board actions, and they haven't released the order yet. And uh, you guys are going to have fun with it when it comes out. I mean, literally, Nick, it's what you just said, right? They defend a you know six percent reserve bank as safe and sound, but attack a one hundred eight percent reserve bank as unsafe and unsound. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah. So maybe this is a good time to get into sort of the political element to all of this. It seems, you know, and I think people on crypto Twitter were already sort of talking about as soon as there was the collapse of Silvergate and Silicon Valley Bank, you know, we're going to see some way painting this as, as crypto's fault, right? And that's kind of exactly what's happened. And there's been politicization around 
like the tech industry as well, right? So let's kind of dig into the whole political element here. And maybe Nick, this is where I could I'd call on you. You published a pretty pretty prescient article with the benefit of hindsight, right? On what you kind of called Operation Choke Point 2.0. Yeah, so big props. But could you describe the original uh, Operation Choke Point that took place in 2013? What was the purpose? What were the agencies that were involved? And then what are we seeing today? Yeah, I mean, this has been discussed among... Um, crypto folks for a while, actually. So I'm not really going to take full credit for that. In fact, conversations I had with Caitlin really informed my thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't directly deal with choke point 1.0. A lot of folks did. Um, and so really what it was, was a, a kind of covert, subtle program to discourage banks from servicing specific disfavored industries. The In particular, payday lending was one of the targets firearms manufacturing, ammunition, the adult industry. And the way it worked was basically the DOJ and the FDIC would make insinuations and kind of partially off-the-record comments to the banks themselves and suggest that if they provided services to these high-risk industries with risk uh, being determined by basically reputational costs of, of serving those industries, that they would face investigation and other costs, uh, you know, Cost rising to do to do business, and so they basically debanked those industries. That largely ended in 2017 when Congress noticed, and they realized that federal regulators were basically imposing a de facto new law without authorization from Congress, and that largely ended. Of course, many people realized and noticed over the last few months the pressure has been ratcheting up against banks servicing crypto clients, in particular, the banks that are now defunct, which were the crypto adjacent banks, and through a variety of mechanisms, one of course being the Fed's uh, denial of new bank charters for crypto-focused banks. That was the big red flag for me. But other things like joint statements from all the various federal agencies covering these things, saying over and over that crypto providing services to the crypto industry poses safety and soundness risks. That crypto introduces systemic risks into the banking sector, which is, of course, nonsense. And it's the other way around. Yeah. And (laughs) and so, you know, I was hearing this from bankers directly. I was hearing this from startup founders, executives in the crypto industry that were trying to onboard with banks and being told um, it doesn't work if you're small, you have to be really big, you have to be a super valuable client to offset the cost that we, the bank, incur for servicing a crypto firm or being met with the total blacklist on crypto firms. Bankers now tell me that they have to individually approve with the FDIC each new crypto client that they bring on, which is an insane roadblock to doing business. So I called this choke point 2.0. It's not exactly the same as choke point one, but that was the most analogous term. And uh, since I wrote that in February, of course, the pressure campaign has ratcheted up an insane amount, more than I ever expected. Well, we knew it was happening to us because the Fed leaked to the press two days before it voted Custodia down. What we started hearing, and we didn't know where the leak was coming from at the time, but we started hearing from the press that Custodia was about to be voted down. This was presented to us by multiple press outlets as a foregone conclusion, preordained. By the way, this is supposed to be a fair process, right? Okay, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was. It, it became very clear 
that both the White House and the Fed were involved. And one of the reasons that we ultimately concluded that the Fed was involved is because we sent the general counsel of the Fed a response letter after they had asked us to withdraw our application. And within hours, a reporter was recounting it back to our PR representative. Okay. So uh, that didn't, that didn't come from us. Um, Mm. Think about the ethics violations and the procedural violations that that occurred there. Um, But ultimately then it became clear. And in fact, actually we had, thankfully there's a sieve in Washington. We had insiders come forward and confirm to us the white house was involved. And it was pretty obvious that day of the uh, of the custodial re- and, uh, denial because the White House and the Fed coordinated to release their press releases at exactly the same time. Now, here's the smoking gun. Everybody at the time was speculating, was there going to be another Operation Choke Point 2.0, as you, as you said, Nick? What we have is evidence in email because a reporter revealed to us what the reporter was told. And the reporter told us that they were told that within the last 48 hours that the, all the Fed and OCC bank charter applicants had been asked to withdraw their applications or they would be voted down. Okay, so I knew from the early stage that Operation Choke Point 2.0 was absolutely underway and absolutely coordinated. Again, the interesting question is, wait a minute, there are due process protections for applicants for bank charters. They are supposed to be uh, reviewed by the agencies on their individual merits. And then all of a sudden, press leaks are confirming that the Fed and the OCC applicants were asked to withdraw at the same time. Come on. I, I agree with that. Now, for, for those, for those uh, who might not be quite as familiar with the, the regulatory apparatus that oversees banking, uh, Caitlin, you were just sort of mentioning some of the, you know, some of the bodies there. But my, my memory of Operation Choke Point 1.0 is that that was largely a joint effort by the FDIC and the Department of Justice. Uh, Caitlin, can you kind of describe what, you know, obviously it depends state by state, but what are the major agencies that oversee banks and how, how should this application process go? And then what where did it kind of go off the rails in, in with, with your knowledge with when it comes to custodia? Well, uh, I'll start with the last question first. It went off the rails in January. And uh, and so, you know, we were, make, we were making progress up until that point. And then all of a sudden there was a U-turn in January that pretty clearly came from the top brass. And again, we know a lot, a lot more than I can share. Uh, right now, it will eventually all come out. Um, but uh, I think it, I think there were things, there were illegal things done here, uh, and certainly things that massively out, uh, overstep the regulatory jurisdiction of the banking agencies. To your point about um, Operation Choke Point 1.0, yes, the Department of Justice was involved, but there were really not criminal. Um, there weren't criminal charges brought against uh, against the banks. It was mostly the FDIC. And mm. uh, and I shared with Nick as he was preparing that Operation Choke Point 2.0 blog post that just went viral. Um, what? How is it that the bank regulators have that much power? They they very much do. And yes, they can shut down a bank and seize lawful property even if the bank is solvent, right? We're going to talk about Signature Bank later, but it appears that at least there are credible allegations that that's exactly what happened with Signature Bank. That was a taking of private property by the government. But they have, in some cases, at least there's ambiguity 
thinking, suggesting that the bank regulators do have that kind of power. So when you get the FDIC going on a power trip against industries that it doesn't like, and in and Operation Choke Point 1.0 covered 30 different industries before Congress started embarrassing them and they backed down. Um, now, by the way, they're starting with crypto this time. They started with payday lenders back, back in Operation Choke Point 1.0. Um, but I think everyone should expect that the politically incorrect industries or politically out of favor industries, however you want to say it, are next. It's oil and gas. It's mining. It's coal. It's, uh, you know, firearms. <laughs> it's ranching. Mm-hmm. Right. And by the way, I just listed the core industries of my home state of Wyoming. We're mm. going to care a lot mm. about this. And part of the reason why Wyoming created the new Special Purpose Depository Institution Charter, which took effect in 2019, is precisely that. There were, there were. if you go back and look at the legislative record in Wyoming, there were legislators who lost their bank accounts for their businesses. In one case, a firearms dealer who was who almost went out of business. Okay. He had a lawful, legitimate business. He lost his bank account and he had, a scram- had to scramble to replace it because the firearms industry was out of was out of favor. And so he was very interested in having the new type of bank charter where FDIC insurance was optional for precisely that reason. So now uh, you asked me, what are the, the bank regulators? How does it all work? It's yeah. a very confusing system. Uh, the, the, the chartering authorities, we have something called a dual banking system where the, the charters are equal. That there are there is a federal charter, the OCC bank charter, and then there are 50 different states plus territories that can charter banks as well. So you either have a federal charter or a state charter. Uh, there's a, a law that went into effect during the Clinton administration called Regal Neal that allowed for interstate banking among state chartered banks that makes them equal to national banks. Okay, so there really functionally is no difference in the grand scheme of things between a nationally chartered bank or a state chartered bank. Then you have the FDIC and the Fed. Those actually are not chartering authorities, but they are supervisors. So state chartered banks generally, not always, generally have a federal regulator and the banks choose, the state chartered banks choose whether the FDIC is their regulator or whether the Fed is their regulator. And uh, the FDIC, of course, is an insurance fund as well. And, uh, and then on top of that, of course, the Fed uh, runs the payment systems. A lot of people think of the Fed as just executing monetary policy. No, the vast majority of the people who work at the Fed are in the bank supervision division or in what's called RBOPs, Re- Reserve Bank Operations. And, uh, and that's basically the payment system. Um, the Fed is a confusing organization. Uh, the, the, the Board of Governors is a federal agency subject to federal laws like the Administrative Procedure Act, the Freedom of Information Act. The 12 reserve banks are technically privately owned. They live in an ambiguous, in a, in a state of perpetual ambiguity, though, because they do take administrative action. And that there's boy, there is a lot of, of of gray area, and they exploit that because they they sometimes choose, oh, we're an agency for this purpose, or we're not an agency for that purpose. Um, and and boy, there's and there's a lot of case law uh, around the whole question of those twelve regional reserve banks. Are they private organizations or are they government organizations? Uh, but that's where all the balance sheet is. So the whole idea of a central bank digital currency, it's not going to be issued by the Board of Governors in D.C. It's going to be issued by the 12 regional reserve banks. 
And there is some thought that one of the reasons why they came down, the Fed came down like a ton of bricks on Custodia is because Custodia last July was granted the patent in the United States for tokenization of bank deposits. And it, because those 12, 12 regional reserve banks are quasi-private organizations, they're subject to US patents. And so if there were ever going to be a tokenization of a bank deposit, they might need to shove that patent aside. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I have no knowledge that that entered into the equation. Uh, I will say that we spend a lot of time at Custodia doing a lot of work uh, on, on our proposed digital dollar, Avit, and, uh, and the Fed was fully aware of everything we were doing as well as uh, everything, um, as well as the existence of that patent. And, uh, and if you look at, uh, at the public press release that came out, it was, it was denying Custodia as an unsafe and unsound bank. And if you read between the lines, they, well, they actually did say it was because of the issuance in part of, of, um, of, of a token on a public permissionless blockchain. You can start to read between the lines what they were very focused on was our proposal to issue that digital dollar. Now, um, just to, to wrap it up, though, Custodia cut that out of our business plan and resubmitted a business plan that was much simpler, US dollars plus custody of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And that wasn't approved either. So that tells you it was more than just the digital dollar. But no doubt the digital dollar was the thing that, that the Fed was, uh, was most uncomfortable with in Custodia's business plan. Uh, and, and, uh, yet of course, you know, they, the, the, that's what they pointed to as the major issue. We had asked them for permission to do that. We told them we weren't going to issue it unless we got permission from them to do that. And they just sat for two and a half years waiting, 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 waiting. And then finally we got the answer right at the very end, uh, instead of actually having a, a dialogue about how do we make this work? But it does give you some real sense for they wanted to shove the whole thing out um, because once we cut out that digital dollar uh, and, and went to a much simpler business plan, one that many banks are already doing, including Bank of New York Mellon with, uh, with Bitcoin and Ethereum custody, and they still wouldn't approve us, that speaks volumes. I just want to add one thing, too. I haven't seen this much reported. The FGIC is absolutely at the center of this. and. Yes. Um, I believe part of the reason Custodia, uh, you know, and generally the SBDI construct was attacked was because they would have been potentially exempt from FDIC insurance requirements, right. right? As a fully reserved institution, so that removes a political lever of control. Given that the FDIC was the primary instrument of Choke Point One Point here's something else: the current FDIC chair, Martin Grunberg, presided over Choke Point One Point Correct. He was in office from 2012 to 2018 and then was out and then now he's back in. So he has direct first-hand experience. He owns that scandal. Yes. So they have the institutional knowledge of that, which is now being re reapplied in a, mm. actually, I would say a more aggressive and direct way because it's not insinuations and informal guidance anymore. It's written it's policy letters, it's blog posts, it's written down. So they have plausible deniability because they keep saying crypto mm. is a threat to the safety and soundness of banks. 
they so they write that down. So they're not explicitly barring banks from serving crypto customers, but they're de facto barring them. Because you know, through a variety of methods, mainly by telling banks that they can't do this um, because it you know increases risk of their business, but then also with the investigation th- that we see against crypto banks, and then now in the most recent week with the decapitations of the crypto banks. So that's an important point. The person who is ultimately responsible for choke 1.0 is currently in charge at the FGIC. Well, and also generally wanted to bring to heel these tech forward banks we were talking about early on, right? Wants to go back to an analog system where you're filling out a paper form in handwriting to, to be able to move money through Fedwire, right? So this is this is uh, yeah, uh, you're 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 spot on, Nick. And 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 some of the things that we've been told from the insiders who have come forward uh, very much pertain to exactly that. Yeah. After I wrote the article, a bunch of folks reached out to me privately, bank executives saying this is real. Um, Brian Brian Brooks has gone on the record. He knows this better than anyone, obviously, as former comptroller. He uh, stated, I think, yesterday that choke point is real and coordinated. I have former FDIC officials reached out to me confirming that this is not a coincidence. This is an interagency process. It's highly coordinated. So, you know, Caitlin, I think, had direct first-hand knowledge of this. The rest of us in the industry were kind of trying to piece the you know, puzzle together. In the months since that blog post, we now have certainly enough information to know that this is real and it's coordinated. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you all have been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> Uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero, just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Let, let's talk a little bit about Signature, because I think there was a very different... First of all, I, this was a huge surprise to me, just how Signature was treated. This was around the furor of Silicon Valley Bank, and is the government and the FDIC going to step in, or are they not going to step in? And then it was almost like a, a little footnote, oh, and Signature Bank has been closed. You know, <laughs> Signature Bank, you know, it's a bank that's been around for 20 years, you know, $10 billion in equity, 100, 100 some billion dollars in, in assets, and it was just closed. And I think there was a lot of spec, but one of the guys on, on the board was Barney Frank. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it should. It's right there in Frank and Dodd, right? The banking regula- regulations that swept post GFC. And he's on the record saying, right, that he thinks that it was a, here. I've actually got the the quote here. The bombshell um, New York Magazine article. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. This was a great uh, New York Mag article by Jen. I always struggle to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. she wrote a phenomenal article where, where mm-hmm. Barney directly, you know, he he said that, um, you know, we we were being signaled out as the, the poster child for crypto and he didn't understand why the bank was closed. So, you know, for, for my eyes, that, that just felt very weird to me. Um, am I am I missing something or what was both of your interpretation about that? You know, what's interesting about both Silvergate and Signature is that when it's all said and done, there may be positive equity value at both banks. 
right? <laughs> Signatures or Silvergate stock is still trading at $2. It's not trading like a company that is about to go into chapter 11 because they're going to avoid chapter 11. They, they're just going to voluntarily liquidate. And, uh, and, and the same thing with Signature, as you just pointed out, if indeed that is true and there are credible allegations there, then I think that it will all be said and done that the shareholders actually get money back because that, that may have been a solvent bank. That it, Barney Frank himself, very knowledgeable, as you point out, author of Dodd-Frank, said this was the first bank in U.S. history that was put into receivership despite being solvent. I hope that there is litigation around that because that was a taking of private property and the ambiguity in the bank regulations that was exploited there very well should be litigated. Now, um, the interesting thing that, that suggests that indeed just looking factually from the outside that something different happened there, when the FDIC takes over a bank, they typically go in at five o'clock on Friday night. They didn't take over Signature until Sunday night. Mm -hmm. And there were reports that the FDIC was surprised that it landed in their lap. Remember, I mentioned that the state chartered banks choose a federal regulator usually. Mm. The, the um, signature had been FDIC regulated at the federal level. The other two banks that failed, Silvergate and Silicon Valley Bank, were Fed regulated at the federal level. So uh, those, those three banks were state chartered banks. And in the case of the first two that failed, they were San Francisco Fed regulated banks at the federal level. In Signature's case, it was FDIC. So that makes it doubly interesting, shall we say, <laughs> that the FDIC ended up getting a call from New York and had a bank that it hadn't planned to receive because if it did, it would have been there on Friday night. And on Sunday night, it landed in the FDIC's lap. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll add there. I, there's a litany of evidence here that something really odd and unusual um, went on here. Barney France allegations that the bank was solvent, the fact, the timing, the fact that post SVB collapse on Saturday, the sell side was coming out looking at Signature Bank's financials and saying they're not facing the same kind of impairments. They're not in as bleak a financial position as SVB. So they didn't look as badly off. The fact that Cigna, so this is really interesting. Reuters reported that Signet would not be included in an acquisition of the assets and mm. a sale of the assets, which implied that the objective was to basically furlough Signet, which was the you know fiat settlement network that they had uh, between their clients, which is a critical piece of crypto infrastructure. Uh, so which a very odd, you know, given that if you know Silvergate's exchange network Sun collapsed then Signet would be the last remaining one. Clearly, there's positive value there. Uh, that's a, you know, a critical element of their uh, crypto practice there. Positive value there in an acquisition. The fact that that wouldn't have been included implies that there's an anti-crypto animus at the center of the decision there. That was later d disputed, I believe, by the FTIC. But whether Reuters, I don't believe that Reuters would have got that reporting wrong it suggests to me that the FDIC saw the backlash and then walked it back. Mm -hmm. um, so all of those things together, and also the fact that the DFS superintendent, Adrian Harris, is on the record as being hostile to crypto. So all those things together imply that something deeply unusual happened at Signature 
on Sunday night. Remember, this is the third, I believe the third biggest bank failure in U.S. history. So, you know, $100 billion in, in, in assets. This is not a small bank. Um, it's five times bigger than, than Silvergate. So to me, it looks like a political takedown, an opportunistic takedown during the fog of war to settle a score between DFS and Signature is the last, at that point, the last remaining major pro-crypto bank. I believe that we'll get answers around this, but from the public information we have, it looks deeply unusual, and it looks like basically eminent domain or expropriation of a, of a private sector entity. At that point, the equity value was $7 billion. So the shareholders should be, you know, right, you know, rightfully indignant here. I mean, and they will, not, they are. It, it's not a common practice in the United States to seize banks just because you don't like who their clientele is. That is something that happens in autocratic regimes. That doesn't happen in a free market economy with the rule of law. You know what's interesting is I read in American Banker two days ago that every time a bank is received, the FDIC Inspector General reviews the process. And these inspectors general are independent. They are CPOs, uh, commission police officers. They are law enforcement agents with arrest authority and with subpoena power. And from what I understand, some actually do carry firearms. So they are full-fledged private police, well, basically internal audit officers with police powers of these organizations. Now, the, the agencies have them, including the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, and the OCC. Okay, so according to practice, every time a bank is received, the FDIC inspector general reviews it. So I assume the inspector general is going to be asked about that at some point. Now, that's probably a year from now to next point. Um, but this is this is a pro- this is one of the things these these sort of you know de- uh, internal auditors with police powers can and will review these situations. I found it fascinating that the Fed put in charge of their internal review of Silicon Valley Bank's collapse, not their Inspector General, but the guy who was in charge of the bank examiners who caused the collapse in the first, or who missed the collapse in the first place, okay? They literally put the fox in charge of the hen house, the vice chairman of supervision. It was his division of the Fed that missed Silicon Valley and Signature, or, and, and, uh, and Silvergate. Um, and by the way, I have gone on the record that I was warning bank regulators that there was bank run risk in the banks that were serving the crypto industry. The, in the fact that one of the top cops, Michael Sue, the acting controller of the OCC, which is again the Federal Bank Chartering Authority, he picked it up and actually cited me in a footnote of his April 8th, 2022 speech, talking about warning of the liquidity risk among the banks that were banking the stablecoin issuers. Okay, so I know that my warnings were heated. I've been warning since 2020 um, that 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 there was bank run risk in these banks, and privately behind the scenes, I was warning bank regulators (plural) uh, that there was bank run risk in these banks. Okay, and and nothing got done about it. So it's interesting because Senator Warren came out and criticized the Fed for yep. using their own staff to do the internal review as opposed to, for example, using their inspector general or maybe bringing in the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, 
which is a, effectively the external auditor of the government. And in fact, actually, she said, let she, her tweet was, and her uh, New York Times op-ed was to let the, let, let vice chair for supervision, Michael Barr, do his job. Well, wait a minute. That's, <laughs> that's the division that missed it in the first place. And moreover, again, as I said, the, the, as the Silicon Valley Bank run was in full swing, he made a speech, an anti-crypto speech saying, that Fed supervised banks don't have the bank run risk because they're subject to Fed supervision. So this literally is the fox guarding the hen house. I, I, I tweeted at Senator Warren, I almost agree with you. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's definitely something that uh, Jay Powell himself should not be involved with. But then when she said, hey, let Vice Chair Barr do his job, she should have said, no, let's have an independent review, whether it's the internal auditor, i.e. the inspector general, or an external auditor, the GAO. Um, I do think that one of the things this industry should be actively calling for is a GAO investigation of the agency coordination and the exploitation or extra jurisdictional authority, the exploitation of the gray areas or extra ju jurisdictional authority that these bank regulators have grabbed here. And in particular, it's to Nick's point, the FDIC, and I would also add the Fed. The OCC hasn't so far been involved, but the Fed and the FDIC have done things that I do not believe are legal. They've got, they've expanded beyond their statutory authority. It's not just a question of exploiting gray areas. And I'll give you an example that that statement that the Fed released on January 27th, at exactly the same time as the White House released its anti-crypto statement and Custodia Bank's uh, denial of our membership application was publicly released. Those three things came out at exactly the same time, again, in coordination. But here's the punchline. That January 27th policy was not properly vetted under the Administrative Procedure Act Something that is a sweeping policy change must be put out for public comment. That was not put out for public comment. It was published in the Federal Re Register on February 7th as final. And I do not believe that that is lawful. And it, uh, I think a few folks in Congress picked that up as well. I, I believe Emmer included that in, in Whip Emmer included that in his letter. So another, and I think um, recently we, we had a whole bunch of FOIs uh, go out to, to try and get to the bottom of this. One it's not going to work, though. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, that, that either the inspectors general have to review, again, those are the internal auditors of the agencies, or the GAO, the external auditor, has to review it. Sorry, go ahead, Nick. I was just going to say, one other thing on uh, on Signature, I mean, so obviously we have a bank run. Three banks are you know either voluntarily liquidated or going to receivership. All three had a crypto practice. SVB, the smallest as a mm -hmm. share of their... their Activity, but still, you know, they infamously they were coin Coinbase's banker back in the day, so they were what allowed Coinbase to stay in business in sort of 2014, 15, and they were servicing USDC as well. Um, if so, those three of the, the the three that end up being closed down, and then basically the Fed comes in with this uh, BTF uh, P uh, now facility, you know, providing liquidity to banks, basically. Ensuring that banks aren't going to fail at least imminently, they're you know they're going to face these runs. So throughout this crisis, is three banks that are shut down, and they happen to be the three that are focused on crypto, to you know very varying extents. You have other banks that are impaired, other banks that have this exact same 
hold to maturity issue. First Republic Bank yeah. now facing serious issues. Yesterday, there was some sort of brokered injection of capital, $30 billion, into First Republic Bank. So they'll survive. It's extremely convenient for the regulators that have an anti-crypto perspective that the three banks and none others that failed were the ones for servicing crypto, and in particular, Silvergate and Signature, which maintained critical infrastructure, which allowed the crypto market to exist, basically Signet and Sun, which now that those don't work anymore, crypto liquidity is impaired. It's very hard to move fiat around to match the settlement speed of blockchains. So that's going to cause issues for exchanges and stable coins, et cetera. I find that extremely convenient that throughout this crisis, there's three institutions that go down, two of them, the major banks servicing crypto, and no other banks that didn't have a crypto practice failed. So to me, that's like the general yeah. takeaway from this is just, especially, and with Silvergate, we haven't even covered, I don't know, there's still open questions for me around the withdrawal of the federal home loan bank facility that they were taking advantage of. Um, what caused Silvergate to to repay that, what they heard, whether that was part of a political pressure campaign against the FHLB. Um, we don't know what the real story is there, but I believe that was the immediate catalyst, the immediate trigger for Silvergate's dissolution. So not as clear a smoking gun as the issues we see with Signature, but still an open question that I think we deserve answers to. Wait, voluntary repayment early. Right. And if, <laughs> if the repayment is the thing that plunges you into insolvency, why would, why you, would you do that? It wasn't insolvency. Well, yeah, it's right. just liquid. Right. To, to, yeah. yeah. Why would you commit suicide like that as a bank? You know? But that's the point. The stock is still trading at $2, okay, which the market is saying there's still some positive equity value there. Let's see when it's all li liquidated whether the, the shareholders get anything back. But that's the point. It, it, it is entirely plausible that shareholders do get some money back in both Silvergate and Signature. It's crystal clear that depositors, that shareholders will not get anything back in Silicon Valley Bank because just this morning it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, it, it is just just to underscore the point, I think that, that both you are making, it's been pretty pretty telling, I think, to watch the how these two situations were handled. You had Silvergate and Silicon Valley, you know, one that primarily 90% or some odd of, of Silvergate's deposits were crypto-based. Obviously, it was, uh, you know, Silicon Valley was primarily concentrated in the tech sector. And just the way that First Republic was treated versus Signature, right? There's some kind of coordinated injection of capital into First Republic. And for Signature, it's just closed with no explanation. And the last thing I will say is that Reuters reported that and the FDIC came out and denied this later that the the uh, suitor, right, the acquirer of uh, Signature, um, would have to divest any and all crypto activities. So I thought that was worth mentioning. As I, well. Intensely suspicious. And did Reuters get that wrong? I don't think so. Reuters is not a you know they're a pretty credible organization. Yeah. What I think is more likely is the FDIC saw the backlash and right. they walked it back. But will mm -hmm. they really let some acquiring bank? Uh, you know, recreate uh, signatures crypto practice. I would be shocked if they did. Mm -hmm. Now we've got. We, I know we only have about five minutes left here. I want to end on something that's a little bit more positive, actually. And I will say, 
Bitcoin. It has been fun to watch the reaction that Bitcoin has had throughout all of this. Um, I, I'd be curious to get both your interpretations of that. Um, and in general, like one thing that we didn't really talk about is if you look at the market's expectation of the terminal rate, that has just been a whipsaw these last couple of weeks. We also did see through some combination of the facility that you were mentioning before, uh, Caitlin, and then also just the opening of the discount window. I think this past week, there's some 300 billion added back to the bank's balance sheet. And I think that's led some to speculate that we've found our liquidity floor in terms of QT, and maybe that's yeah. what Bitcoin is responding to. Is that both of your interpretation as well? Well, QT is definitely over. That's clear. The Fed's balance sheet is expanding again, as you pointed out, by $300 billion last week alone. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing, I don't usually comment on Bitcoin's price because it just, you know, it does its right. thing. But I think in this case, <laughs> the divergence between Bitcoin and the and, and just risk assets is interesting because those of us who've been Bitcoiners for a long time always have expected that at some point it will start to behave as the true insurance asset against systemic collapse. And I don't know if this is the big one. Uh, like we talked about early on, it's plausible that the big one happens during our lifetime. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen 20 years from now. We don't know. But it is clear that the underlying traditional system is unstable, right? It's got this huge maturity mismatch and the Fed is stepping in with its balance sheet to, to make up for the difference. QT is over. QE is back. We don't know how big it's going to be. But it could potentially be very big. The bigger the bank run at the smaller banks in the country, the bigger the Fed's balance sheet is going to have to be to backstop them. So um, <laughs> the fact that Bitcoin is up 30% this week alone, uh, I, I just find awesome because it's, 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 it's flying in the face of what the regulators are trying to do, which is to try to kill crypto. And it's just making Bitcoin stronger. We've seen this before. Uh, you know, Nick and I were both around in the previous debanking wave, which happened in 2017, 2018. That was the time when Tether took off. Um, necessity was the mother of invention back then. It was a real uh, innovation in terms of a new US dollar payment rail. Uh, pretty clear the Fed doesn't like it and took aim at all of the private stablecoin issuers. Uh, they haven't yet taken aim at Tether and uh, maybe Tether gets the last laugh for uh, trying deliberately to stay offshore. Who knows? Let's see. Yeah, I I think um, you know my big takeaway from this, of course, Arthur Hayes came out with an article this morning saying this new facility proposes up to four trillion in liquidity <laughs> from the Fed, which is larger than the all, the total COVID stimulus. Um, so obviously, a massive, clear change in the positioning there. Regardless of whether we get a rate hike or anything, it's clear that that QT is over and the Fed is in a in a stance now where they realize they have to provide liquidity or the bank system will utterly collapse. My big take is that basically now the safety of the US banking system has been called into question and depositors are now doing that analysis of you know it, you know are, are the funds that are sensibly mine are they someone's liability or are they really mine. And that you know people like Zoltan Pozar have been talking about this you know moving from uh, the old regime to a new one where you really start to care about that, whether your money is truly outside money, whether it's someone's liability, or whether it's true genuine money unto itself, like gold or Bitcoin. And the interesting thing for me is Bitcoin's divergence from the rest of the crypto market. So as the sort of 
true, like most sound monetary protocol. Bitcoin is ripping. Rest of the market doing well, but but lagging. Stable coins as well. Previously, I think people, crypto folks, thought that stable coins were a really awesome collateral type, but they ultimately are someone's liability, and we saw that Correct. with USDC, right? USDC ultimately dependent on what's happening at the underlying financial institutions. So even stablecoins, as good as they are, are not that sort of ultimate no one's liability asset. And um, Bitcoin, with all of its warts and issues, uh, in this regime where we're, we enter a full-blown banking crisis, a global one, may I add, not just US, mm-hmm. is one of those ultimate assets and arguably the best one because gold, of course, is still typically custodied with a third party. And so people are now... So just revising all their views around where they're storing wealth and as the ultimate wealth store, Bitcoin's done extraordinarily well in this environment. So I think the price action is just really validating for, for you know what Bitcoin is and what it proposes to be. By the way, just one frame of reference, and I know we've got to close it here, uh, but just we've all been desensitized with large numbers when it comes to the Fed. 300 billion. Uh, this is a quote actually from Michael Faroli, who's the uh, chief US economist at JP Morgan. That was about half of what was extended to banks in the great financial crisis. Correct. So, one Correct. week, we just did about half of what we did in the great financial crisis. So, just something to consider uh, as we end this interview. Caitlin, Nick, this has been uh, eye opening for me, and I'm sure it was for the listeners as well. I'm sure people are probably already familiar with both of you, but if they want to find out more about the work that you do or, or follow you, what's the best way to do it? Custodiabank.com, and I'm at Caitlin Long underscore on Twitter, also on LinkedIn, and Noster. All right. I still need to get on Noster. Everything, <laughs> my whole corpus is at nickcarter.info. Excellent. All right. Thank you both so much. This has been great. We'll have to do it again soon. Thank you. Thank you.